Welcome, my brothers and sisters. I'm Pastor Murphy. We welcome you to the worship experience of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church. It's our joy that you have joined us on this Lord's Day, and it certainly is our prayer that the Word of God instructs you and empowers you, and that the worship by way of singing and celebration blesses you with inspiration as you get yourself prepared to meet the challenges of a coming week. Be blessed. Sit back. Embrace, soak up what God has for you today. We'll look forward to seeing you again in the name of the Lord. Amen.
Welcome to the church announcements for the week of August 29th. Presently, we are still worshiping virtually and you are invited to join any of the weekly services. Our adult Sunday school is held each Sunday at 8.30 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 o'clock a.m. The Youth and Young Adult Sunday School is held each Saturday morning at 10 a.m., and the study is open to all youth and young adults. Prayer meeting is held each Wednesday at 6 p.m., and you're invited to join a group of Zion Prayer Warriors as they offer intercessory prayers for our church, community, and the world at large. If you have a specific prayer request, please contact your deacon or the admin office. Prayer meeting is followed by the adult Bible study led by Reverend Dr. Murphy at 7.30 p.m. As a reminder, for the months of August through September, the adult Bible study will be exploring the book entitled, Making Friends, Making Disciples, Growing Your Church Through Authentic Relationships. The focus of this study is to explore how we can improve our church membership through authentic relationships. Deacon Joanne Johnson O'Neill and Reverend Dr. Murphy are the facilitators, and the book is available for purchase on Amazon.com or other literary websites. This past Saturday, August 21st, in conjunction with their monthly food distribution, the Greater Little Zion Evangelism and Missions Ministry was blessed to distribute 101 children backpacks filled with school supplies. The responses from the recipients were overwhelming with their gratitude and expressions of appreciation. Now, the ministry is making preparations to help even more during their December food distribution because they recognize that December can present an added hardship for families. Shortly, you will be receiving an email seeking your assistance in donating a $25 Visa gift card so that the ministry can give a little extra to these families. Please share this request with your family, friends, co-workers, and others who might be willing to give towards this cause. The time frame to donate a Visa card is from September 1st to December 11th, and the cards can be either mailed to the church or delivered to the admin office on Wednesdays of each week from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Deacon Nolan Crockett, Sister Kathleen Crockett, and Deacon Anthony Baysmore are the points of contact. Pastor Murphy has requested that all members complete a three-question survey on the reopening of the church for in-person services. This survey request was sent to your email on August 23rd. In answer to a few inquiries, please note that all responses are anonymous. You are asked to please complete the survey and submit it as soon as possible. For additional church information, please visit the website at glzbc.org. Thank you and have a blessed week.
Good morning, greater little Zion. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad within it. We want to invite you to get your Bibles again and turn with us to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. And we're also going to read Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 7, and Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. We're going to conclude our journey in the study of the life of Joseph today in this particular sermon. But let me announce to you that certainly this is not the concluding sermon that can be found in Genesis beginning in chapter 37 and picking up again in chapter 39 all the way through chapter 50. There are probably at least another 10 to 15 sermons left from Genesis 45 through Genesis chapter 50. Um, and they are, are quite informative. Many, many, many different nuggets remain to be um, lifted from the passage, uh, but we're going to conclude here um, because there's another series we need to move to, but I want us to take a look at this passage of chapter 45 as we read on last Sunday, verses 4 through 7, and then we'll look again at chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Genesis 45, beginning at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me, and they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And then in Genesis chapter 50, and I want to begin reading at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us? and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke these words to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Today, we want to preach from the subject, defining your life story. Defining your life story. That's the essence of this Joseph's journey. 
its definition of what his life is entailed in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 45. And even you can hear it again in the midst of the verses of verses 15 through 21 of chapter 50. As I alluded to before, there are many more principles to be learned from the Joseph story. Particularly, I wanted to try to get to chapters 46 and 47 and even go back to chapter 43 as we took a look as we took a look at the social injustice or more pointedly the social racism that experienced between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. When you read back in chapter 43, particularly Joseph as he comes to the table and begins to dine with his brothers, he sets them up in their birth order. He sets them up at a different table also because the text reminds us that the Egyptians despised the Hebrews. They did not eat from the same table. There were racial issues between them. Also in the latter chapter, between 46 and 47, Joseph, when he brings finally his father and the rest of his brothers and all of their family gatherings to Egypt to live, Pharaoh is going to ask Joseph about his father. And then Joseph conveys to his father, when Pharaoh asked you, what did you do for a living? You tell them, we attended to livestock. We were shepherds. But interesting enough, he tells them, make sure you tell them you're shepherds because Egyptians thought that the life of shepherds was the low life. They were not considered to be of the best of the world. They in return were considered to be less than Egyptians. And so you have this cultural slash racial issue that plays out in the Joseph story. I also had hoped to get to the point where we looked in chapter 47, I think it was. Another side of Joseph that's often not depicted. When we generally hear the sermons of Joseph, we hear more sermons about this spiritual nature. The attempt by the preacher to paint the image of Joseph in the reflection of God's sovereignty. And yet we rarely hear about the humanity that comes out in the Joseph story. You can see that back in chapter 43 and even 42 when Joseph begins at the first instance to meet his brothers, there's a humanity that comes out of him, a sense of anger when he began to accuse his brothers of being spies. But then there is a rather, uh, how should we say, uh, I wouldn't say conniving, um, but a rather shrewd business aspect of Joseph as the scenario shifts. Then we talked about how the characters in the story shift, how we moved from uh, brother, the brothers of Joseph initially to Joseph, and then from Joseph to Potiphar, and then from Potiphar to Potiphar's wife, and from Potiphar's wife to the prison, and from the prison to the palace where Pharaoh enters, and then back to Joseph again where he's elevated and then we have the interjection of the brothers again and Jacob comes into play. Well, once that has succeeded to just for a brief moment, we have the interjection of Egyptians or Egypt itself, who's likewise, remember, suffering from the famine. And what's amazing about the Egyptians is they come to buy grain, says the Bible, they run out of silver. 
And when they run out of silver, they then reside to giving their animals. And when they run out of animals, they're doing this in exchange for grain. They begin to say to Joseph, we have nothing else left. And Joseph says, give me yourselves. And they end up being slaves to Egypt for bread. And I just want you to know how amazingly uh, Joseph extracted all and even ended up purchasing their lands that they might have grain, that they might not starve in the famine, which ended up giving Pharaoh total control of all of Egypt, total land ownership. And we very rarely paint that story of how Joseph utilized some very shrewd business tactics to acquire all the land from the people. But I want us to see that in the story. But today, we're going to close the story by looking at the comparison of Joseph to the life of Jesus. Because when we look at this story, there is much nestled in these verses of chapter 45 and in chapter 50. In fact, I will contend that the verses that we read in chapter 50 are really a restating of what I read in chapter 45. But they give us the sole purpose of Joseph's life. We find that there's evidence that clearly states that when we talk about the purpose defining the story, the life story of Joseph, you can't ignore the fact that the hand of God is in the midst of it. We see that God orchestrates Joseph's disappointments, particularly in chapter 45. And we're going to completely deal with chapter 45. In chapter 45 and verse 5, you can clearly state and see that it states clearly that God's hand is in the midst of Joseph's disappointments. Listen to the text. He tells his brothers, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, here it is, for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's often contrary to the image in which we try to paint of God, that God is always in the sense of being favorable, but yet we contend that God doesn't bring disappointment. God certainly does. In fact, God may be the major orchestrator of disappointment in our lives, permitting it as well as initiating it for various reasons. For Joseph's story, God had a purpose, and the purpose was to preserve, once again, the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and to keep this generational journey alive because God was going to use the seed of Abraham to bless the entire world. So God orchestrated Joseph's disappointments. God orchestrates our disappointments quite often. God also orchestrated Joseph's deliverance in the midst of all of the disappointments, yet God still brought about deliverance for Joseph, look at verse 7 of chapter 45. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. So in order to deliver them, God delivered Joseph. 
And sometimes God works in the midst of our context by allowing us to experience disappointment, but also that we might see how God can orchestrate the deliverance that he has to not only set us free, but to set those free to whom he actually has anointed and appointed us to serve around us. So God orchestrated Joseph's disappointments. God orchestrated Joseph's deliverance. But God also orchestrated Israel's slash Jacob's distress. Look at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 45. He tells the brothers after sharing with them, hurry up. Go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay, and you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall uh, be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, your flocks, and your herds, and all that I have to give you. Therefore, I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. So God is working even in the midst of the distressful moment of Jacob by utilizing Joseph to tell Jacob, come to Egypt. Now remember when we begin chapter 45, of course Joseph reveals himself to his brothers but his greatest next invitation is to extend that hand of grace and mercy again to his brothers and then to his father that he may come to Egypt and there reside. But there are several other points I want to point out in the text that we should consider today. When we think about the Joseph narrative, we get a chance to witness genuine forgiveness so genuine forgiveness has occurred in the text. Again, Joseph is in a position where he could have used his power to crush his brothers, but he didn't do that. He instead utilized grace to not only reconstruct, but to reaffirm the humanity of his brothers, to bring them back to life that they may recognize that all of us make mistakes, all of us fall short, and all of us need grace and mercy. He see the forgiveness in a sense in the brother's eyes because he knows that they've repented. He knows that their heart is heavy of what they've done wrong. Some scholars suggest that the brothers never really exhibit true repentance until we get to chapter 50 and the father dies. And there could be some truth to that, but I, I beg to differ. I think what Joseph saw in their eyes was a bit of genuine repentance because when he listened to their dialogue, he could hardly stand it, is the reason why he had to rush and tell them exactly who he was because I think that he sensed in his own heart it's time to let them know that they are genuinely forgiven. The other thing is that Joseph was future-oriented. Notice Joseph didn't live in the past. Joseph tries to tell his brothers, don't worry about the past. It's yesterday's experience. It's done. It's over with. Live in the now and anticipate the future. And I want to encourage you that as we have experienced someone perhaps or some circumstance to which you've been hurt, injured, 
and yet you've been commanded by God to forgive, you'll never forget, but you can forgive to release that individual as well as yourself from the burden of yesterday's agony. Do so. Release that. Permit yourself to be future-oriented by recognize yesterday is gone, tomorrow is not here, but today is all I have, and labor at anticipating what you desire for tomorrow to look like. And in order to do that, you must avoid the rearview mirror of yesterday and centralize on the future that God has for you tomorrow. But the Joseph story also perpetuates freedom for his brothers. Again, he never lived in yesterday, but notice as we read thus far, Joseph concentrated on helping his brothers experience freedom. Freedom from the guilt of their sin and freedom to be free to live life again. And that's the message I think that the gospel conveys to us on this morning. Yes, we've fallen short of God's glory. Yes, we've made some very dire mistakes. Yes, we've gone against the will of God. Yes, we have sinned, Mr. Mark. But the gracious aspect of God's love and glory is he perpetuates freedom. That's the reason why Jesus says, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Because in Christ there is complete Freedom, says Paul in his epistles. There's the freedom that Christ brings when we embrace divine forgiveness and the glorious grace that God has. But the defining of Joseph's life story is centered around what Joseph says in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 45. You didn't bring me to this space, he tells his brothers. This was all orchestrated by God that I might serve as a preserver, as a protector, as a provider of grace for you and future generations. Upon the death of their father in chapter 50, the brothers begin to contemplate themselves now that Joseph has died, he is surely going to bring, I'm, I'm sorry, now that Jacob has died, Joseph is surely going to bring the full gamut of power on us. In fact, before Jacob dies, he tells his son, this is what you need to do. Go to Joseph, tell him that you certainly are sorry for the wrong that you've done and admit it, you've done it and plead that Joseph will give you freedom, will give you peace, will give you forgiveness. And then we come to those classic words in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph listens to the brothers as they first send a messenger trying to soften the blow, or trying to soften, should I say, the conversation to Joseph, and then they come themselves. And Joseph says to them, listen, you don't have any reason to be afraid. I want you to ask yourself the question, am I in God's place? That's a critical statement that Joseph makes. Am I in the space of God to judge you in reference to your motives? And then he says, of course, as for you, 
what you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. Here it is. Here's a defining reason of Joseph's life story. Once again, God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Genesis 50, verse 20 and 21. That's it right there. That's the whole story. That's Joseph's life story in a nutshell. That's it. It's Joseph's way of reminding us that God, once again, as I said before, works in mysterious ways, takes us along different paths, takes our journey down different courses, permits us to experience different kinds of experience, none in which we probably never anticipated. And yet, God has a reason, God has a motive, God has an objective, God has a destiny for us to arrive at. But the Joseph narrative also is amazingly in comparison, a parallel, I should better say, to that of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can begin by simply looking at their name, Joseph, Yosef in the Hebrew, and Jesus, Yeshua. Both of them come from the same root word that means savior. And Joseph serves as a savior to both Egypt and Jacob and his fellow brothers during the midst of a famine when life is emptying out and causing every anticipated hope of life to be depleted. And yet Joseph comes to serve as a savior in his developmental plan and then serving to reserve the grain that the nation might survive in the seven years of famine. Jesus is the preserver. Jesus is the savior who comes to humanity to preserve humanity that they might not spend eternity away from God, but instead he becomes the substitutionary lamb that stands in the gap in the midst of the famished soul of a human being. And Jesus becomes our savior because he preserves and provides and gives us grace and mercy through the giving of his life. So how does Jesus and Joseph run the same parallel line? Well, very quickly, number one, notice how Joseph confronts, he has confrontation with his brothers. In verse 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 45, he meets them. He makes it clear as he confronts them, but most importantly, look at what the verse says. The Bible says that Joseph could not control himself before all who stood before him, and here it is, and he cried. The pain that he saw in listening to the brothers, but also the pain that he saw in recognizing that there was a cry of the soul in his brothers. Jesus did the same. As Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, his humanity steps forth and we get a peep into what he saw in the cup. All of humanity, the pain and the agony of what the cross meant. Remember the words of Jesus? Father, if this cup can pass before me, but yet nevertheless, it's not my will, but that thy will be done. Joseph weeps for their pain. 
Jesus weeps for our pain and they could only know Joseph when Joseph introduces himself to them. We come to know Jesus as he introduces himself to us through various mechanisms and circumstances. Whatever it is, says Jesus, no man comes unto the Father except he's drawn. There's an experience in life that causes us to recognize we need to be confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ and God does that. And when we have been confronted because he has not only wept for the sorrow of our souls, but he confronts us that we might weep in recognizing the sacrificial nature of who Jesus is. So Joseph not only confronts his brothers, but verse three tells us there's a conviction in Joseph. Look what the text says. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Notice when he tells them that he is his brother, their brother, his next question is, what's happening with my father? The brothers can't answer because I'm convinced that they have their own conviction. And their conviction is they are now in the hands of the one who has absolute control of their life. Joseph could instantly decide the destiny of their journey. He's the judge. But what he does is the same as Jesus does. He looks beyond the past actions. He doesn't consider them. He's looking more to the future. Listen to what he says. How is my father? Is he still alive? Maybe the brothers are contemplating, how in the world does he overlook what we've done not remember what we've done and simply ask the question about our father. But that's what Joseph does. His grace and his exhibiting of love and care is not concerned about the past. He's more concerned about the future. And can't you remember Jesus doing that very thing in John chapter 8 in a woman who seemed to have been arrested by the legalist and brought before Jesus and they were majoring on her past while Jesus begins to look at those who are accusing her and even her as the accused and rather than to have dialogue he begins to write on the ground raising those famed words he that is without sin let him cast the first stone in other words, Jesus says, if there's anybody here who doesn't have a pass, let me see you step forward and become brave enough to declare that I don't have a pass. Because the conviction in the heart of Joseph and Jesus is, I'm able to look past your pass and concentrate on your present that you might experience the glory of your future. Joseph confronts the brothers. Jesus confronts us. Joseph has conviction that he's not interested in the past of his brothers, but he's more interested in the future of the entire family. Jesus does that. 
He looks beyond our faults and see the needs. Which leads to a conversion that's noticed between Joseph and his brothers. Look what verse 4 says of chapter 45. It says that when Joseph shared those words, look what it says. Joseph said to the brothers, please come closer. And the brothers came closer. That's the greatest invitation that those brothers had ever had since their betrayal of Joseph and placed him in the pit. That's the invitation to come close and to get the life that I have. The same as Jesus. Jesus gives that same great invitation, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, are burdened down with the guilt of life, with the challenges of life, with the ills of the world. Come to me, the greatest invitation, and I will give you rest. We can almost hear that him coming to life as we look at that parallel, as we look at that comparison between Joseph and Jesus, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. There's a conversion. Joseph encourages his brothers to convert from the past and come into the new life in the present. Jesus challenges us in that mode of conversion. Leave your yesterday at the cross and pick up your new day that's laying there for you. The Joseph story certainly tells us that Joseph doesn't minimize the brother's sin. He, he doesn't try to reduce it to not happening at all, but instead he maximizes grace and mercy. And that's what Jesus tells us in the Gospels. Come unto me, all you that labor heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You will find rest unto your soul. See, he's not minimizing what we've done in the past, but he's maximizing the grace and the mercy that God gives to each of us. That's a revelation for someone this morning. God knows our failures. God knows our mistakes. God knows our shortcomings. He's not going to maximize that. That's all covered at the cross. For the wages of sin is death, says Paul. That's the price that sin pays us, death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gift that God gives us in return. Conversion means I'm, I'm moving from a state of being previously to a new state of being presently that I might become all that I was intended to be in the future. That's what Jesus tells us about the cross. Joseph confronted his brothers. Jesus confronts us. 
Joseph has convictions about his brothers. He leaves the past behind and pushes for the present. Jesus does the same for us. Joseph invites them to come and to be converted in the sense of let's change your life trajectory. Jesus does the same. And then Joseph enters into what I call the extension of a commission. And Jesus does the same. Look what he says in verse 8 after he begins to converse with his brothers. He says, now therefore, after reminding them of how his life purpose is defined, not by their actions, but by the action of God. Verse 8, he says, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me the Lord, the father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his household and the ruler of all of the land of Egypt. Listen to this line, verse 9, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. There's an urgency in Joseph's commission to the brothers. Now that you have experienced forgiveness, go get your whole family. Bring everybody here. My father, the entire clan, I want everybody here. I want everybody to experience the wonderful, fulfilled life that God has granted me by making me Lord over Egypt under Pharaoh. Jesus does that. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, I think it's Luke, could be Luke 10. Zacchaeus, upon his conversation with Jesus and then that conversion, Zacchaeus says, Lord, whatever I've stolen from anybody else, I want to repay them double. Give them back all that I've stolen from them. Jesus has this marvelous way of bringing about a commission in us when he transforms us. That woman at the well, when he met her and changed her life, she runs to town and begins in a sense of telling everyone, come see a man who's told me all about my life. Remember the demoniac in Mark chapter 5, I think it is, when Jesus had healed him, he wanted to go with Jesus and Jesus says, no, here is my commission to you. I want you to go back to your household and to your town. Just begin to share your story. And that's what the commission is all about. Your life may have some resemblance to Joseph. Your life may not. But whatever it is, we are commissioned to share the story on how God has not only kept us and protected us and provided for us, but how salvation and what it means to us. That's what the commission is about. And so when we hear Jesus in Matthew 28, he commissions the disciples to go out and make other disciples. That's a church growth principle that I think we have a hard time understanding. It's not the preacher who makes disciples. The preaching of the gospel helps make disciples. But disciples are generally developed and groomed by other disciples. Here's what that means. Sheep 
make other sheep. We're commissioned to go out and share the good news and bring them back to this fold we call a church community. That's the essence of the epistle of 1 and 2 Corinthians. That's what Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthian believers. It's all about one another. What do you understand about the Great Commission? Pre-Jesus, Joseph understood it. He sent word by his brothers, go tell your father, our father, it's time to come to Egypt. It's time to come home. And Jesus gives that same kind of commission. It's time to come home. See, listen to what he says in verse 12. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Because they couldn't believe that this is really Joseph. They are probably still marveling in the fact that he hasn't judged them, that he hasn't put them in jail, that he hasn't called for their execution. No, he's still loving them. He's still caring for them. In the same vein as what Jesus does. Jesus loves us just the way we are. And he doesn't bring down the boom. But he walks us through restoration. He walks us through revival. He walks us through reconciliation. He brings us to a place where we hear his voice. Look at verse 13. Now you must tell my father. See that commission? You must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt. We've got to tell the story of the splendor of who Jesus Christ is. Not only the fact that he has taken the space of each of us on the cross, but in his glorious resurrection, there is this newness of life that he has developed for us. That now when we come together, we worship him in spirit and in truth. And in that truth, we are set free. And in that setting free, it enables us to go and tell the story to others. Here it is, still in the verse. He talks about Benjamin because remember his central focus of testing the brothers was all around Benjamin. The least of these, see, all around Benjamin. Can't you hear Jesus in Matthew 25 talking about the least of these? If you really are truly loving the brethren, if you really are going to intercede, look what Jesus did for us. He says, when I'm hungry, you fed me. When I'm thirsty, you gave me the drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. His context is at the judgment seat of God and then the question becomes by those who are listening to his interrogation, Lord, when did we see you like this? And his response, when you did this, when you've done this, when you've ministered, when you've stretched out to the least of these, 
you did it to me. The least of these, those who are homeless, those who are jobless, those who are penniless, those who are empty, those who have no love, you've done it to me. See, that's what the commission is all about. Bringing God's tremendous life-changing what does it mean? Verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept on his and he kissed all his brothers and wept on him and afterwards they had a conversation because the great commission calls us to go out to seek and to save. But not only is there the great commission, the comparison of Joseph and Jesus, but there's communion. That's what we get back here in verse 14, 15. There's communion. Joseph converses with his brothers. Verse 14 and 15 again. He fell on the neck of Benjamin and cried, and Benjamin cried with him. He fell on the neck of the brothers, and they cried, and they cried back with him. Jesus falls on the shoulders of all of us and cries with us. That's why Paul said there's no temptation that can lead us, that can tempt us, that Christ has not already encountered, experienced. That's why the gospels show us that Jesus is a foot soldier. He believes in communion with the people. Throughout the Gospels, he tells us the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But this communion. On that Thursday in which our Lord gathered together with those disciples, they gathered around that table and they did that, that they might have communion. He took bread and broke it, blessed it, gave it to the disciples. He took the cup, looked unto heaven, gave thanks for it, and then gave it to the communion. Joseph talks with his brothers. Jesus talks with his children. But then there's a completion. Joseph assures the brothers that your life is now complete. Look what happens beginning in verse 16. Now when, Pharaoh, now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your, your beast, load your beast, go to the land of Canaan, take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the lamb. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come and do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all of Egypt is yours. See that? Joseph assures his brothers and his father that when you get here, it'll be all you need. You won't need anything else. And Jesus assures us if we come to him, it'll be all we need. You won't need any more. Your life will come to its completion. 
you will begin to define what your life story is because in Christ, old things pass away and behold, all things become new. There is a space, says John in Revelation, it's called heaven. The streets are paved with gold. Trees and its leaves are good for the healing of the nation. There is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more pain for the former things have passed away. It's the culmination of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the completion. Joseph's family would get it when they get to Egypt. Pharaoh blessed with all that they need. You and I will get it when we come to Christ and we get to eternity, all that we need. Then there's a final one, the continuation the continuation of walking with God for Joseph and the brothers for being in Egypt. Listen to verse 24. So he sent his brothers away and as they departed, he said to them, don't quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he's the ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. He says to the brothers, don't quit. Don't quit because you're going to take a journey back to Canaan, and you're going to inform our father that I'm still alive. And Jacob couldn't believe it. Jacob had no way of believing that the sons were truthful because they've been liars before. Remember Joseph's coat? They've been liars before. Remember when they came first to Jacob and told him how they got the grain and Jacob says, why did you tell him that you had a younger brother and a father back here? And they said, well, he asked about the family. Joseph never asked about the family. Here's translation, here's translation. Here's what it says. Continue in your walk with God even in the midst of uncertainty because only God can control how the outcome is going to be and yet they gave the one thing to Jacob, the one thing that would convince Jacob that Joseph is still alive. Look at what verse 27 says. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. See the words, even though they sound delightful and they sound exciting, they weren't convincing. That helps us understand that words are one thing, but actions Speak louder than words. And look at the next line. Verse 27 of chapter 45. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him and die. Why? Because salvation provides evidence. 
See, the words carry some things. This is where your life must match your words. Words carry some power, but nothing changes like the lifestyle. And Joseph knew that, and Jesus says that. Jesus had a major issue with the Pharisees and scribes because they would preach one thing, but live something entirely different. And he wanted the lifestyle to match the testimony that you gave. That's where our conviction comes. That's where the Holy Spirit reminds us when we have gotten off track, get back on track. Because people will look at the evidence that we provide. When Jacob saw the wagons and saw all the goods, and saw everything that Joseph had sent. Listen to what he says. I'm, I'm satisfied now. I believe Joseph's alive. Now all I need to do is get to Egypt and see him face to face. Then I'm ready to die. My life's journey has been completed. The cycle is done. So what are our lessons learned in this Joseph journey? Here's the first one. Get yourself a wagon load of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of love, and riches, and show it off. Because that's exactly what Joseph did for his father that he might see he's alive and well. Get yourself this wagon full of all of these assets and show it off so that people can see there is indeed a God alive and well living within our lives. That's what they need to see, evidence. Show me that God has worked in your context and your life. Show me that God has delivered you. Show me that God has healed you. Show me that God has made a way for you. Show me evidence. That is what will change people's lives. Get you a boatload of evidence. Here's the second thing. Trust is lost in buckets, but gained in drops. See, I'm not convinced that when Joseph was elevated to prime minister of Egypt, and his brothers in their transgression against him, all trust, all trust by Joseph had been lost. But in seeing them to come to Egypt for grain, I'm convinced he began to start giving back trust in drops. And when we've crossed someone or someone has crossed us and we have a difference and something has separated us, Trust may be lost. A whole lot of it may be lost. But it can be regained, but it may only come in drops. And we got to be willing to permit those trips to constantly come into our life so that we can eventually recreate a wholeness that we may all be one again. That's what Joseph does in his journey. He helps his brothers recognize, you've lost a lot of trust. You've hurt me. 
but in drops and giving it back because I am grateful to how God the Father has given me boatloads of trust, buckets of trust back. I think that's what you get when you look into the life of Paul, when you look into the life of Peter. You can only consider that in Peter's life when he betrays Jesus. He, he, a boatload of trust, a bucket of it has been lost, but yet in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, drops and drops have been given back to him. He's the one who stands and preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. And then finally, Joseph depicts something that the late Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, has said way before Kierkegaard, Joseph had already begun to live it out for us. Kierkegaard says that life is lived forward but only understood backwards. Life is lived forward but only understood backwards. See, that's, that's the words we get out of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15 through 21. That's what Joseph is telling his brothers as he is coming to the end of his own life. His father dies and the brothers are greatly concerned and Joseph, as they approach him, seeking forgiveness, crying out, we know we've transgressed against you. We recognize that we've done you wrong. We're asking you, please don't live in the past. And Joseph says, oh no, chapter 50. Verse 8, verse 19. You don't have any reason to be afraid. I'm not in God's place. Listen to what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, current moment, to preserve many Therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph said, I ain't living in the past, but I'm living in the forward, but I understand what happened in the past. Some people, we don't quite understand why they do what they do. I got it, and you may not understand today, but keep this in mind. Tomorrow, there may be full explanation as to why they did what they did and why you did what you did. Keep loving them anyway. Because Joseph's final words to his brothers before his death seem to suggest to us as best as we can, let's close the loop before we make that transition into eternity. Leave out of this journey with your own clear conscience, recognizing also that my life's story is defined by how God has blessed me on this life's journey. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit and for the word and for the life of Joseph. Thank you for the word of God that gives us hope and inspiration. My prayer is that this journey that we've had in the life of Joseph has been a blessing to the listeners and may this final word find a place deep in their heart that they may leave this space recognizing they can begin again. 
I pray today, Lord, if someone recognizes that Jesus Christ has been the substitute, has made his way to Calvary all for them, that they too would embrace his invitation, come unto me. In the words of Isaiah, come now and let us reason together. And Lord, we're going to rejoice with them because their names have now been written in the Lamb's book of life. And today we're going to rejoice also because this is the beginning of a new day. Thank you for those who have been born again, uh, those who have been revived and whose repentance has led them to a new walk with you. We're going to forever give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We extend our invitation, of course, and if that's your testimony today and you're in need of a church home, we certainly open our arms and extend the invitation to you to become a part of the Great Little Zion Baptist Church family. We'd love to have you. I'd love to be your pastor. We'd love to have you a part of this church family. We look forward to that. At the end of this broadcast, there are addresses, manners in which you can communicate with us. We'd love to hear from you. And we appreciate the fact that we have had the opportunity to share in the good news of Christ with you. Now we encourage all of you to continue to give out your support. We thank you for those who financially support this ministry. And we give God praise that you make this opportunity possible. <clears throat> and we encourage you to continue to do so as well. Well, my time is up. And as I always say, always remember, God loves you. And so do I. Have a blessed, wonderful, victorious, and expecting week in the Lord. In Jesus' name.